The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Oh, man, I our, love that sound. That was our, our first pour. decanter pour to start the show. <laughs> it's a and long pour. Definitely decanter. quieter, much more, way too sophisticated. For a little it. elegant, shall we say. Hey, everybody, welcome amazing, to the winemakers. the young one over here, too. I'm John Myers, yes. sitting with my friends. Let me see here. Brian Casey, Bart Hansen on my left, Kyle Reynolds uh, also hanging out over there. Our guest today. The one and only Joel Peterson, and of course, Sam Katuri. Good to see you, Sam. How's it going? Excellent. Perfect Happy day. Happy made it. And Joel, thank you for coming, man. I am so appreciated. To be here. Wow. <laughs> it's really cool. Nice to sit down with guys like you. Yeah. Well, it's, so, it's, you, you it's know, fun, one, man. One thing here, we have to note, because this is October 16th, and mm. um, this is probably the busiest uh, week of harvest this week. I mean, unless you're in, we're a Pinot or Shard guy a couple weeks back, but there's at still, least here in Sonoma st- Valley, still, I saw on Sunday Steve San Giacomo playing golf, and he said they still have Chardonnay hanging. Wow, you know wow. this That's is late. this yeah. is one of the longest, slowest harvests we've had in years. Yeah, uh, why? Temperature, um, degree days? Uh, I think it started out a little bit um, less intense uh, and. It stayed relatively cool. We haven't had any of those really crazy heat spikes that we've had in some of the previous years in the last three or four years. We never hit over Uh, 100 this year, did we? Once or twice. And the other aspects are the fact that it stayed very cool at night. Uh, What we're seeing is fairly high acidity for a lot longer. You know, in the past three or four years, we've seen... You know, sugars ripen pretty fast. We've seen flavors lag behind, and we've seen you know pHs climb. Uh, this year, pHs stayed low, acids stayed high, and we had phenolic ripening, flavor ripening, much much earlier than uh, we have had relative to the other two. I mean, so it's been pretty. It's been a pretty magical year from a winemaker's standpoint. I have to say. The Malik's are higher than I've seen for a while, but you know that's not a problem. You know, they'll uh, they'll soften out uh, with the wines, but the wines are really pretty. To yeah. emphasize that point, Joel, we have uh, a block of Grenache in Oakville that just hit twenty nine bricks. Wow, pH is three point two six. Yeah, really. I just like it, it, I mean, <laughs> and, and and the berries are still solid. Berries are solid. There's not dimpled or anything. There's, and there's tons of leaves on the vines. It like hasn't started to change colors yet. You know, you know, there's, it's a vineyard that was picked uh, eighteen days. Well, no, we didn't. We were gonna pick it the week of the fire last year. Didn't. Uh, and the year before it was picked at the beginning of October, end of September. Yeah. So you know we're. Um, it, yeah. it, it has been an amazing year yeah. in watching things ripen. And I've been walking the last vineyard I'm getting grapes from like it, it, it in excessively because I just keep expecting to watch and go in and see it start to dimple or start to, you know, and it just, it's hanging perfectly. Yeah, the grapes are holding up. That little hanging. rain we had, we had almost an inch and a half of rain you know, in some areas of Sonoma Valley, maybe more on your Yeah, hill. we had almost two inches up on the um, hill. And, uh, you know, 
in most years, that would have been a catastrophe. Yeah. Uh, in this year, it seems <laughs> to be just fine. You know, the grapes still seem to be hanging up. Of course, most of the grapes that were still out were the thick-skinned grapes and looser clusters. Right. Uh, Cabernet, Merlot, you know, very little Zinfandel left. Right. Uh, some Grenache still out there. But, uh, but really, you know, grapes that tend to be more resilient to rain, and this one didn't seem to bother them very much. In fact, it just sort of... Washed them off and um, made the vines a little a happier thing. than they would have been otherwise. <laughs> right. Um, I did, they, ha- I did have hanging? grapes where the bricks went from, you know, twenty-two point eight to twenty-one point five, but they bounced back you know, a couple days. Later. Are they hanging with integrity and dappled sunlight? Well, that's you know, that's whole thing. Um, it, they are, the ones I'm the one I'm talking about <laughs> is and they're fill farmed and Perfect. I mean they are. And that's perfect. That's how you survive two inches of rain. Absolutely. You know, you need, you know, you need that airflow. You need grape, you know, bunches that aren't piled up on top of each other or on top of, you know, the vine or the trellis system. And then if, if you have that and you have some sunlight, you you survive two inches of rain at the beginning, you know, the first week of October, which I think, you know, probably scared a lot of people around here. But seeing the same thing where it's, you know. The, I was looking for way more bunch rot and botrytis and things out, there, and I'm just not, I'm not seeing it. You know, it's it is. There's a lot of like stellar alignment happening out there right now. It's well, like not pretty to, magical. Not to sound like the old guy in the group, but uh, this is almost identical to what 1989 was like. And 89, as you'll recall, was like. Um, a disaster year, particularly for Chardonnay and some other things. And I was, it was September fifteenth that yeah, it rained in yeah. eighty nine. And um, how do you remember that part? Because it was my Jesus. birthday. Okay. <laughs> and, I, and I was working in a winery, I, and I was young to it. And yeah, well, happy and birthday, I, I had, At that particular time, my winery was in the gourmet toilet seat shop that was on the San Giacomo property, uh, right there at the, the Dead Man's Curve, you know, on Broadway. And I walked out after that rain, maybe a week after the rain, and everything was still humid and hot. And it was before we'd started pulling leaves and, on, and thinning clusters on Chardonnay. It was like old-style farming. I went out and shook one of the San Giacomo Chardonnay vines, and the clusters just kind of came apart. They, the grapes oh. just kind of slimed off. They were totally oh. botrytized. It was, from Chardonnay's standpoint, it was a disaster. Yeah, although I did make one of the best San Giacomo Merlots I ever made, you know, that year. It tasted exactly like a Palmerol. It had all that brown sugar quality to oh, it. I'm into it, it really then. So that might be a really good um, segue into these first two wines that you're sharing with us today. Yeah. <laughs> well, as, as you know, I've uh, started a new winery called Once in Future. Um, and Once in Future is really about going back and having the winery that I wanted to have uh, in, you know, early 70s when I started Ravenswood. It was kind of a back-to-the-earth project. I had hair down to my shoulders and uh, was just trying to get out of the routine. I lived in Berkeley. I worked in medical research. And, you know, I said, okay. So I hung out with Joe Swan from 1972 until 1976 when I started Ravenswood. And I made 327 cases in my first vintage. And I made it all in redwood fermenters, all punched down by hand, all native yeast fermentations. And... Wow. And... And of course, I grew Ravenswood making wine like that. And really, it really wasn't until 2001 that I retired my Redwood fermenter just because I had gotten too big. You know, it was really, I was one of those guys who couldn't say no to a grape. And uh, it kind of got out of control. Your son has that problem too. (laughs) (laughs) And and ultimately, you know, the winery ended up being close to a million cases and uh, acquired by Constellation in 2001. Uh, And so I was like doing stuff 
that I never anticipated I'd be doing. Um, but, you know, a couple of years ago, I decided that it was time for me to go back and, you know, look uh, at doing what I wanted to do back in the beginning, which was have a small winery where I made everything by hand and use redwood fermenters and use very classic old style winemaking techniques. So the first wines that you have, uh, the first wine you have is, uh, is a wine that I actually made uh, in 1989, beginning in 1989. It was a San Giacomo Merlot. It was a Merlot that um, uh, was planted in the Carneros, so it fit my definition of where Bordeaux varieties should be planted. Cool climate, uh, Bordeaux. It's beautiful. Uh, and when the, I found out the San Giacomo's hadn't uprooted all the vines and there was some left, I decided that I could make that for once in future in spite of the movie Sideways. Uh, so, th- so, so this is the, the... It's not only the same, obviously, winemaker and growers, but it's the same vineyard, the 95 that we have in front of us and the once in future that we have in front same of us. Same vineyard made in exactly the same way. That's uh, perfect. Yeah. And, and, you know, really. on something Joel said, you know... A lot of people in the wine industry don't ever talk about the fact that Bordeaux is a cool growing area. And right. where we grow Bordeaux in California is not necessarily um, a cool growing area. And I saw that Cody is getting some Cabernet from the other side of Sonoma Mountain and could probably be considered a pretty cool growing area for mm-hmm. um, Cabernet. Um, and so I'll be very curious to see how that goes for him. Yeah, I made um, uh, wines from... A pickberry, which is a vineyard right, up on sure. uh, the, the Bennett Valley Gap, yep, sort of just below Laurel Glen, and it's pretty cool up there too. Yeah. So you have to wait a little bit longer for everything to, to ripen. Um, to have some I, patience, and I think it's such get, a beautiful area out there too. Man. It's not that California Cabernets are bad, but they tend to be very lush relative to what Bordeaux's are. Right. Uh, and uh, if you're interested in having wines that are brighter and higher in acidity and fresher, you tend to go to a cooler climate uh, location and this merlot is definitely uh from that location yeah. so on one glass you have a wine that was made uh, small open top fermenters punched down by hand native yeast uh, french oak essentially the same way as the next wine that you have in your glass which is a 1995 san giacomo that i made back then same vineyard same place you know same winemaking technique and you can see how the perfume has evolved in this wine uh 1995 was, interestingly enough, a slightly warmer year uh, than uh, the, uh, uh, the 2016 that we have in the other glass. Um, but it still has a little bit of that herbal character. And part of the change has to do with the fact that San Giacomo's have changed pruning technique on this slightly. Uh, they've thrown in a kicker cane, and the, the problem with this vineyard is because it's in the Carneros and there's a lot of wind, uh, there's, and the winds come exactly when the fruit is ripening, right. you get shatter. Uh, and so the crop levels are really too low in this vineyard, so the leaf ratio to fruit is wrong, so you tend to uh, maintain a bit more of the herbal character. Mm-hmm. So in my section of this particular vineyard, they're throwing kicker canes in. Uh, the kicker canes uh, help hang a little bit more fruit. It still shatters, uh, but there's a bit more fruit, so the balance between leaf and fruit is better, so you get uh, more developed fruit character uh, in the one you would otherwise. This nose, the bouquet on this is incredible. <laughs> Seriously. Isn't it pretty? Beautiful yeah. wines. They're yeah. both they're both beautiful wines. The um, 
the 95 is um it's it's beautiful it's and bart really i love your decanter really nice. there i i thought it was sitting on a wire or something like a, a cord for the microphone yeah, that's the one no, decanter we have in the slanted it's so. very cool i actually have shot glasses that are the same way and we, since joel is <laughs> here we should also probably take this opportunity to say hi to morgan twain peterson so <laughs> since you brought him up a little earlier, you know, so, so while we're while we're on the San Giacomo, Joel, and then Morgan topic, there's a question that came up because we had Morgan and Chris on the podcast uh, a few months ago, and we were talking about the Bambino, Morgan's first wines, and the story came out that basically. Morgan would wander from your winery into the San Giacomo office and basically I think got you know maybe a little retribution to you so that's my question when Morgan showed back up with a ton of Pinot Noir it's five years old what what, what went through your mind <laughs> well actually interestingly enough Morgan and I tell a slightly different story about that that's shocking it's essentially it's essentially the same but you know uh, Morgan was Let's say precocious as a child. That's, and, that's uh, funny. That's what the um, and, that's what the San Giacomo brothers said also. And I took him to uh, Burgundy with me uh, when he was four. Is and that that shot you posted to love? That him? is the shot I, I posted Beautiful. with with Noble at <laughs> yes. uh, Romani Conti. Yeah. And so we toured <laughs> Romani Conti together, and Noble carried him through the entire winery, like, and talked to him in nonsense talk. He was. Speaking French, and uh, Galen or Morgan was speaking God knows what, uh, but <laughs> Four year uh, but that Morganese, uh, and they they hit it off. So when um, when harvest rolled around, when he was five, he said, "Well, he said, Pop, I want to make wine this year." I said, "Great, what do you want to make?" And he said, "Well, I want to make uh, Pinot Noir." I said, "You want to make what? Why do you want to make <laughs> Pinot Noir?" He said, "Well, because you said you'd never make Pinot Noir." And I said, well, you know, I'm a poor, starving winemaker. I can't afford to buy you Pinot Noir. I said, but if you want to make Chardonnay or Cabernet or Zinfandel or Merlot, we can do that. Uh, I'll just screen off some of the grapes that I have, and you can do that. And he said, nope. He said, I want to make Pinot Noir. And I went, ah. So my, my daughter, Caitlin, and, uh, and uh, Mia San Giacomo were good friends, and they would get together after school. My daughter was 10 years older than Morgan. Um, and... Uh, and I, so I went to pick her up at Ange's house, and Ange invited him in for a glass of wine, and he said, uh, you know, I got this really interesting Pinot Noir. Would you like to taste it? I said, yeah, absolutely. So we're sitting around chatting, and Morgan walks over to Angelo, and he says, you grow Pinot Noir? <laughs> and Angelo says, yeah, Morgan, I grow really good Pinot Noir. And I'm going, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and and, um, and he's, 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 Morgan says, well, you'd give me a half a ton, wouldn't you? And, and Angelo says, is right, Angelo huh? says, what are you going to do with it? I know your father can't afford to buy it. <laughs> and, 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 Italians. Uh, and Morgan them. says, well, I'm going to make it just like they make it at Romani Conti. <laughs> and Angelo said, you know what? If you're going to make it just like they make it at Romani Conti, I'm going to give you half a ton of grapes <laughs> from my best Pinot Noir. And that struck up a friendship between Angelo and Morgan that was quite remarkable. So Angelo really did assign him his own row of Pinot Noir, relatively close to the office. Uh, Morgan would go over to the office. Angelo said it used to be hilarious because they used to have this giant high desk, and his, office, his desk was behind this high desk in the front. 
and the door would open by itself, and he couldn't see anybody because Morgan was so short that like you know that nobody could see him. Uh, and he said it was like he said. At first, I thought the wind had blown it open, but after a while, I knew it was Morgan. He'd come over, and he'd check on it, and we'd go out. And Ange, Ange taught him about viticulture. He taught him about how grapes grow and all the rest of that stuff. So from the time Morgan was five until the time he was 18, we made a, a barrel of Pinot Noir um, from Angela's grapes. Uh, some years were better than others. When he discovered girls, he didn't pay as much attention to topping as he probably should have. Um, uh, but... But he made some pretty credible wines out of that. And when he went to Vassar, he worked at Chelsea Wine Vault in, um, uh, in New York City uh, during the summers. And um, he, said, he called me up and said, hey, Pop, how much, of that vino bam- how much of that Vino Bambino? By the way, he created his own label and his own name and pasted the labels on. That was <laughs> part of the summer job. Um, how much of that Vino Bambino do we have left? And I said, well, we haven't been drinking a lot of it. You made about 24 cases, so we probably have 20 cases of each. He said, I think I can sell it to some of these psalms here. Yeah. And essentially, he sold enough wine to places like Gramercy Tavern and Blue Hill and Pichelin uh, to, I mean, um, you know, it's perfect. It's not like he sold it to the local corner bodega, right? <laughs> Bodegas only. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, to uh, to pay for a semester of Vassar. So it was like, it hmm. was not bad. Tell me you still have a bottle or two of that around. Oh, we definitely have a bottle or two of that around. Excellent. Yeah. Wow. Like, what, a, what an education, man. I mean, that's just perfect story. Well, the, the thing that I love about it, you know, uh, Joel and, and Angelo St. Jacques, I mean, not not in competition, but, you know, individuals with their own companies and their own, you know, goals as far as wine business in Sonoma goes. And there's this type of sort of like mentorship and collaboration that, um, you know, still goes on. And, and I see it and, you know, you see it now with, with the way that Morgan, um, you know, is bringing up Cody and, 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 Luke, and, and Luke and the people in, in his, in his winery. And, and, you know, that's what, Especially the Sonoma Valley wine business is really all about it. It's obviously we're all in competition. And we all want to sell out faster than the other guy does. But at some point, there's, and 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 maybe you can talk to more about this, Joel, because you were there kind of as this was all forming. There's a real uh, feeling that if we all do well, you know, if we do well, everybody does well, and there's sort of a, a rising tide uh, raises all boats. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, you know, you were yeah. there with no. I think I think that's true. I think that. Um we, I think at least in the Sonoma Valley when I was coming up, we didn't think of each other as, col- as, uh, as competitors so much as collaborators. Uh, we felt like the wine business was growing, and none of us were going to have a massive share of it, but we all wanted some of it. And we also understood that if we worked together, uh, we could actually create a bigger share for all of us, right. which is ultimately what we did. We started uh, the Sonoma Valley Vintners and Growers back in those days. Uh, we shared equipment. We shared grapes. We shared knowledge. We had parties together. Uh, it was a very collaborative kind of time. I, yeah, I mean, for instance, I mean, here's a, here's a story. So I got a call from Matanzas Creek. You know, hey, you ha- we know you have the same press as we have. Um, and our vacuum um, motor just went out, and we've got a, a load of grapes. We can get it repaired, but we've got to get this load of grapes done. Would you mind unvol- unvolting your, you know, your vacuum motor and bringing it <laughs> over to us to th- bolt on ours so we can finish? The- Absolutely, I, which is what I did because I was between press loads. 
and um, and I knew that they would do the same for me if that was all the friends case. and so, family here, isn't it? So, yeah. Joel, um, and I apologize if you already said this. What was the first year of Ravenswood in Sonoma Valley? Uh, first year of Ravenswood in Sonoma Valley was 1981. I started Ravenswood in 1976. Uh, used uh, what was called the Peripatetic Winery because I used somebody else's winery for every year up until 1981. I did my first vintage at Joe Swan, my second vintage at Mark West, my third vintage at um, uh, Martini and Prati, my fourth vintage at Martini and Prati, my fifth vintage at uh, Toblis at Russian River Vineyard. Um, that's mm. which is where I got my first bond. I bonded a little room off the side of Toblis, which must have been, you know, you know not much bigger than this room, uh, which I, was where I kept my barrels. And, um, and then I... Uh, had a momentary hiatus where I moved everything to Berkeley to the Durkee Mustard Mayonnaise Factory, which was closing <laughs> down. Uh, but when the, uh, the health inspector said, well, we, we really can't allow you to age your wine in oak barrels because they're not hygienic. You should really use stainless steel. I said, you know, maybe this isn't going to work out. Right. At which point I found out that uh, George Weiner you know, was moving out of um, uh, this little San Giacomo uh, place there on, which used to be the L&D Market, um, on the end of Broadway, uh, where, where there was a woodworking shop. And George, in the section of the, uh, the building, I got made oak toilet seats and oak toilet paper holder rolls. And I used to refer to it as the, From gourmet, Sonoma Valley. the gourmet toilet seat shop. Right, yes. Yeah, you remember, do you remember when oak toilet seats were all the rage? I really like those toilet seats because they're not cold. <laughs> <laughs> My aunt Brian Casey, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, boy, that brought me back. Nice warm seat. <clears throat> yep. Nice cold morning. Yeah. So, well, I mean, and so a point of reference there, I mean, at that point, I, I know when I first started, they used to say, that, and so I was 86, they said there were 13 wineries in Sonoma Valley. And so there was probably, you know, uh, just a dozen of you at that point, um, or maybe even less. Yeah, um, I think that's probably true. Right? I think there was, you know, there was Gunlock Bunchu. There was obviously Sebastiani. Right. Uh, there Saint was... St. Jean uh, and Valley of the Moon, Kenwood. Kenwood, St. Francis. Yep. Um, uh, I think I think Homewood came in shortly after that. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was the um, members of the of the Vintners and Growers in '86. Yeah. So where were I the mean, Benzigers then? They were not here. They well, yeah. yeah there? It, well, not when Joel was there. No, Joel. Mm-hmm. The, they didn't come until '83. Was their first harvest of Glen, when Glen Ellen? When when it was Glen Ellen was '83. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So I, I mean, it's it's you like remarkable. predate everybody, Joel. This is really cool. Uh, I don't predate the Bunchus or the oh, Sebastianis. Yeah. Well, All the Sebastianis are. Yeah, you know, they're kind of no longer as in that particular format, right? Yeah, but they had they had really wonderful the winery formerly known them. as yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, no, I've been around for a while, and um, and I'm and I'm grateful for it. You know, it's it's interesting. A lot of my cohort is beginning to uh, pass on. Kent Rosenblum, you know, was yeah. at his That's memorial right. service that was recently. Sad. It was sad. You was, know, how did you get the name Ravenswood? I hear there's a nice story behind that. Oh yes, well. In my first harvest, I uh, wanted the grapes to be just right, and uh, I went out looking for grapes. Nobody would sell me grapes because they had long hair. I finally found a guy who, through the with the help of Tom Daylinger, who Goddamn also hippie. had long hair. Goddamn hippie, exactly. Grape growers are like really conservative guys, and most of them were Italian. Um, 
Most of, most of them. <laughs> <laughs> most of them. Yeah, your family is an exception. Yeah. <laughs> I have a hard uh, time thinking of Tom Dalinger with long hair. Yeah, uh, no, I don't. Tom Dalinger did not have long hair. He was very oh, conservative. Okay, I was going to say, <laughs> but he and I, but he and I were friends. We actually helped each other out, and I borrowed his truck to pick up my first grapes. And uh, so I found a guy named uh, Joe Vogenson who had uh, a vineyard, and uh, it was an old vine vineyard up on the uh, on the west side of Dry Creek uh, near. Um, Near where Bella is now, uh, and I, um, I, I waited for these grapes to ripen, and I waited for these grapes to ripen, and I waited till the last minute because there was a rainstorm coming in at the end of '76, which was a drought year actually. Um, and uh, so I called up Joe and said, "Okay, we need to get these grapes picked," you know, and he said, "Fine." Yeah, you know, I said, "Bring your tr- bring your, bring a truck up," you know, and we had wooden boxes in those days with wooden boxes on it. Wow. And I will, I will pick the grapes. I'll put them in these 50-pound wooden lug boxes and load them back on your truck. You come up, tie it down, and you know, head back to Joe Swan's, which is where I was making the wine. So I spent the day. I brought the truck up. I spent the day helping Joe make his wine and pick his grapes, and then headed back up about six o'clock that evening to pick up my truck, uh, which was going to be full of grapes. It's going to be great, you know. I got there and it was not full of grapes. There were, and in fact, the grapes had been picked, but they were in 50 pound wooden lug boxes spread over four acres of vineyard, four ton of them. Uh, oh my God. And I looked out and I went, oh my God. And, and the rain was moving and you, the clouds were coming in. It had begun raining in the hills around me. Uh, as the rain fell, there were rainbows. I mean, like there were three rainbows. I almost called this winery Arc en Ciel, except I had a, a much more intense vision beyond that. Uh, so I panicked. I said, oh my God, I've got to pick these grapes up myself. Apparently, you know, Joe had had a migraine headache and told his foreman to pick the grapes, but neglected to tell him to put it on the truck. So I'm running up and down the roads. You know, when you're picking up, you know, four tons of grapes and loading them in the truck, you're not picking up four tons of grapes. You're picking up 16 tons of grapes because you pick up the boxes once, you take them into the row, you stack them up, you pick them up again, you put them up on the truck. You get up on the truck and you pick them up again, you put them in the right place on the truck. Uh, then you have to take them off. You know, like, so I said, all right, I'm going to get as many of these grapes as I can before the, the rain stops me. And it began raining around me. While I was doing that, these two huge ravens floated into a tree next to the vineyard and began kind of chanting. Like it wasn't like caw-caw. It was like this kind of rolly, deep throat thing that they do. It's like, it's quite remarkable. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this, and these were big birds. And I'm thinking, this is really weird. You know, raven, nevermore. You know, like you, you think about the dead soldier and like the three ravens and all the, all the rest of that. And I'm thinking, okay, this is not, this is grim. Anyway, so I'm picking them up. And it turns out it's raining around me, but it's not raining on me. And so I get all the grapes picked up. You know, it's dark when I pick them up. The head, truck headlights are leading me back to the truck. Um, I get the truck tied down. I'm thinking it's going to be stormy and wet going back. I get in the truck, and I start driving back. It doesn't rain on me the entire trip down to Joe Swan's. The streets are wet, but I don't get wet. You know, Joe Swan and I offload the, the truck. You, uh, if you were ever there, you'd know his crusher was outside. Yeah, you know, we're crushing into the crusher outside, and I'm thinking any moment now it's just going to let go. As we dump the last box into the crusher about 1 o'clock that night, um, the skies open up and it pours. So it's like PFM. It's like pure fucking magic. I mean, perfect. it's just amazing. Absolutely yeah. perfect, man. Yeah. And so I'm lying in bed that night going, oh, my God, what just happened? And, like, I'm re- replaying the thing in my head. And the ravens kind of keep coming up in, in my head. 
And so the Ravens, I knew they had to be part of the name, you know, but Raven Winery never sound, sounded quite right. It just sounded kind of like incomplete, you know. And so fast forward to 1978, uh, I still haven't released the wine yet. I'm you know, going broke. You know, I have really no, you know, I can't afford to buy bottles for the, for the bottling. And um, one of my friends in Berkeley says, well, he says, you know, I know you love the opera. And he said, you look like you're a little down. He said, I'm going to take you to an opera to cheer you up. I said, that's good. You're taking me because I can't afford to go myself. And, <laughs> Can I borrow your suit? Right. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and he said, I said, well, we're going to go see you know, something cheery, you know, maybe you know, Rossini or something like that. He said, no. He says, I'm taking you to see Donizetti. I said, Lucia? And he said, yep, Lucia Lamar. I said, you're kidding. Everybody dies. He says, that's the point. You'll see how bad it can be. Maybe you'll feel better. Yeah. But it turns out that the, uh, the hero, if you will, the, uh, it's kind of like Romeo and Juliet gone worse, if that's possible. Uh, so the Romeo character is a guy named Eduardo Ravenswood. And while he falls on his sword in the opera, because it's, they love blood in operas, it's based on a novel by uh, Scott called The Bride of Larmermore. And uh, in The Bride of Larmermore, uh, Eduardo Ravenswood is foretold to kill Lucia's father, and being uh, in distress, he rides into the moor and drowns in the quicksand. And I thought, perfect. Starting in a small winery is like drowning in the quicksand. <laughs> yeah, Ravenswood, I love the name. So that's how Ravenswood got his name. Thank you so much. What a, what a great story, man. That's perfect. And then on the, the note of the label going with Ravenswood, um, I, I learned a little bit about California art um, with my parents. They were kind of into it and then working at Kenwood. Um, can you talk about your how you got David Lance Goins to design the label? Yeah, well, I was a shaping his junkie when I lived in Berkeley, and my mother actually did uh, the editing for uh, Alice's first book. She did all the recipe testing you know, for it. Uh, so I was connected with Shaping East, and you may know that Alice and David were dating when Alice first opened the restaurant. So okay. David spent a lot of time at Chez Panisse as well. So I ran into David frequently, and it became obvious to me. I loved the Chez Panisse posters, posters. So I thought that it would you know, be a really good thing to go see David if I wanted a interesting, you know, West Coast, very indigenous kind of art yeah. uh, piece. And so I told David that I wanted something that was kind of like a Japanese family crest because I wanted to have that um, you know, Pacific Rim feel to it, uh, but I wanted it to integrate the ravens, and I wanted it to be seal-like. And after some <laughs> various funny doings, he came up with that, uh, which is perfect. <laughs> the it's outtakes. Like a, yeah. it's, it's, the most, uh, it's the most tattooed uh, you know, uh, wine logo, I think, in the wine business. Uh, we actually, yeah. at Ravens, we used to have a, a tattoo party where people would come up and show off their tattoos, and I get to judge tattoos to find out which was the best. <laughs> you know, and boy, there were some great ones. Yeah, and great um, placements, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, well, there was, a, there was a couple who came up who, were, who looked like marathoners. It turned out they were. They were tall, lean you know, couples, and they said, well, we went out and got tattoos special for this occasion because we heard you do this. And I thought, okay, you know, that's interesting. And I said, where are your tattoos? Turned out they had the tattoos on their hips, but they had them on opposite hips. And, quote, they mate when we mate. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> they won. <laughs> Runners, you know, <laughs> what a bunch of nuts. <laughs> Total nuts. Oh, go ahead, Brian. Go ahead. Yeah, Joel, 
I, I'm just curious, you know, unlike Morgan, who who grew up with, uh, you know, parents that were making wine, you sort of grew up with parents, I think, were chemists uh, when you were a kid. And, and your mom sort of took it upon herself to to buy a bottle of wine. And I think she had heard that it, uh, it went well with food and she thought French wine was probably the way to go and, and yeah. went looking for a bottle of French wine. I think maybe you were 10 at the time or something when you had your first uh, uh, glass of wine. Yeah, she, um, she actually read a book by Elizabeth David when she was, you know, she stayed home with me. She was a nuclear chemist that had worked on the atomic bomb. So staying home with me was like a far cry from what she'd been doing. Uh, and um, she got bored, and so she started reading cookbooks because cooking was kind of like chemistry and made my father happy and made her happy. Uh, and she read this cookbook that said the French drank wine with their meals, and she said, well, that's pretty interesting because she'd grown up in Bolinas, and she'd never had a bottle of wine in her life. Uh, what did they so, drink in Bolinas? Um, milk. <laughs> milk. <laughs> <laughs> she was part of a large dairy family. My, my family arrived here in 1852 and started dairy families in Petaluma and moved uh-huh. to Bolinas uh-huh. and, on the East Coast, so... Uh, so, oh, we might be another Petaluma connection there. (laughs) So, um, so she read this and she said, well, I've got to find a bottle of French wine. Now you and I could go find a bottle of French wine in about 35 seconds. It wouldn't take long right down the block. But, uh, she ended up having to take her two screaming children, uh, across the Bay Bridge to a place called the city of Paris where they had a French wine cellar. And she asked for a bottle of wine that would go with Turkey for Thanksgiving in 1952 and the guy gave her a bottle of 1945 Chateau Neuf de Pop, and that sealed the deal. I was going to say, oh, yeah. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it probably was Chateau Forcia. I don't, we don't know that for sure, but it was 1945. Um, and that turned my, my father into a wine fanatic. He started a wine club called the San Francisco Wine Tasting Society, Wine Sampling Society, excuse me, and he ult- which ultimately led to the Vintners Club in San Francisco. Mm. Uh, he died on the day that opened, unfortunately, and I was given an honorary membership, which helped my understanding mm. of wine a lot. But when I was 10 years old, he was writing a newsletter, and he decided that it would be... He didn't have really good words for wine. Uh, in fact, he... He described, for instance, the 1949 Chateau Rouget as smelling like the spars of the USS Constitution. What? <laughs> now, what, that's, what does that mean? That's really specific, <laughs> you know, and I actually went and smelled the spars of the USS Constitution to find out what he meant. And he was a sailor, and he meant piney and tarry and oh. briny, and which would have, you know, kind of covered that wine. Um, but he's... He decided that a 10-year-old would have simpler words for wine. So he, he would have tastings on Friday night, and he would open up multiple bottles, and he and I would sit down and sample the bottles before his tasting. And for, many, for a couple of years, he just let me smell wine, and he said, okay, what's this smell like? And so I'd say it smells like apples or something like that if we were doing Chardonnays. And, um, and he'd say, what kind of apples? And I'd say, well, I don't know. And uh, he'd go out and he'd find different varieties of apples. He'd cut them up. He'd put them in glasses. And we'd smell apples until we could tell the difference between Northern Spy and Golden Delicious and Rome Beauty or what have you. Um, and then the next time I smelled a Chardonnay, and I said, oh, this smells like Golden Delicious with a little toasted almond behind it you know, or something like that. So he began to sort of develop a language way before the Ann Noble wheels were there. But that whole idea that you could... You could talk about wine. It's definitely poetry because you're talking about it in other terms, but you you could talk about it using references that people understood. So if I say cherries, if I say black cherries, you know I mean something. If I say pie cherries, you know I mean something else. If I say red raspberries, we have a sense of that. If I say this wine smells like Zinfandel, 
doesn't mean anything no. really, yeah, right. because you know Zinfandel comes in, you know, lots of hues and variations. Yeah, this, and, is, it's, this is really interesting because this is something that I, I talk about a lot in in the tasting room. We don't really have a vocabulary for describing flavors. We we have to go with analogy, and you know, as somebody who is obviously as, as well educated as your father. Um, relying on the sort of the simplicity of a, of a 10 year old who isn't going to, you know, smell the sparge of the USS constitution, right. who's, <laughs> but who's going to just be like to have that sort of free association right. to, you know, get your brain out of the way. Uh, it's, you know, so important in what, you know, wine tasting is about now to, you know, be there then is. is well, really and it's, it's so important with, in that same aspect of, explaining to people they have to think about it in very broad strokes to start. Like, you know, Ryan asked, what is the spark of the U.S. Constitution? Well, but then Joel laid it out in a much more wide, you know, um, descriptor, which makes perfect sense. Pine and tar and brine. Pine and tar and brine. Right. And yeah. It sounds like, you know, a great bottle of wine. Yeah. yeah. It actually was a pretty good bottle of wine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so my father did a lot of wine education because you can imagine that in the 1950s, um, you know, it wasn't like it is now. I mean, we have, yeah, there's certainly no podcasts. Uh, <laughs> right. and, and in fact, you know, wine drinkers could be found in small groups. They belong to things like the Berkeley Wine and Food Society. My parents were founding members of that, along with George Linton, Narcy David, and a lot of other people. Wow, uh, and the San Francisco Wine and Food Society. Um, yeah, and, and so there weren't a lot of them. And they drank mostly European wines. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I go back to look at my mother's menus and the things that she brought back from the various events that they did. And I think there was one, Louis Martini put on a tasting at one point for them, but that was, that was pretty much it. Everything else was German or French, the most expensive wines. I've got a catalog. The first wines my parents purchased were from Lords and Elwood in 1953. Uh, and I've got that. I still have that catalog. And, you know, the Bordeaux's were like, you know, $6 a bottle for first growth Bordeaux. And interestingly enough, the German wines were more expensive. The German wines were in the teens. They were outrageous. You know, but... Um, and those were mostly su sweet German wines. Mostly right sweet here. German wines, yes. They were mostly uh, Spätlese and above. Right. Uh, they had... It was in the days when German wines were even more complicated in their labeling than they are now. Um, <laughs> they had fooder numbers and uh, like the sweetness level. It could be a, a, a rich Spätlese or a dry Spätlese or it could be like, you know, an Auschlese, a beer and Auschlese. You know, like some of those Trockenbeer and Auschleses were unbelievable. Huh. You, know, I, you know, wines, I got to taste wines in that era that I will never, ever be able to access again. Uh, and if I could, they would be too dear to even do that. So it was a it was a pretty remarkable wine education, I have to say. I got to taste the greatest wines sure of the world. Is. Well, in that first case, wasn't there a bottle of Chateau Chem in there as well that came uh, uh, with your parents' first case of wine? Yes, there was. There was actually a half bottle of Chateau Chem, and I think it cost two dollars and fifty cents. <laughs> <laughs> what vintage do you think that was? Um, I think it was nineteen twenty nine. Um, you could buy, I, you know, when I, was, when I was like 11 or 12, my father did a tasting of Sauternes going back to 1911. And the, wow. the meal was built around tasting old Sauternes from driest to sweetest. So they started out the meal with pâté de foie gras and a 1911 um, Sauternes, which 
I'm not, I don't remember what it was, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was a, a chem. Yeah. I wonder what that half bottle would go for today. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> I just saw they, they auctioned yeah. off um, at Christie's three bottles of Burgundy from like 49 and then we're $585,000 a bottle. So the interesting thing about those bottles, because I read that also, John, is what the, the analysis of that sale was is because the the provenance of those bottles was so provable that in sort of the post Rudy Kearney one wine fraud era right. that if you can actually prove that this is what they say it is that all it just like completely skyrockets the value at the same time you know half a million dollars on a bottle of Burgundy um, can you can you drink it you know I mean like what's the point but um, which is put it on display put it on display right put it on Put it on somebody else's American Express card. Um, the the thing that I want to ask you about, Joel, and sort of watching the American wine public sort of shift and expand in the way that you had the opportunity to, because your parents were drinking wine when really it was a a beer and cocktail country. Um, you know, you and think cigarettes, by the and way. cigarettes, cigarettes right. were a big deal, right? Well, yeah. everything tasted tobaccoy in those days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, and the the lore that we always talk about is the Judgment of Paris, sort of changing the face of of American wine. Judgment of Paris was 1976, which also seems to be the first year of of Ravenswood. So, what is what is seeing that transition, and you know, obviously from where it was to you know the sort of level of of craziness that it is now um you know being in the middle of that watching that happen talk about that a little bit well it's interesting um you know i didn't know i was getting in a way i was just doing this because you know it was interesting to me and it's something i really liked and wanted to do um but I, I love surfing analogies so you know you sit out in the cold water and uh you look back over your shoulder and there's it's a pretty flat day there's not much coming and like you know and then you see a little wave, and you say, okay, i got to get up and move, so I'm going to catch this wave, right? So I caught the wave, and, you know, it was a little wave for a while, and then it got bigger as it got towards the beach, and pretty soon I'm on this bloody tsunami, you know, <laughs> that is rolling in towards the beach, and I'm in Mavericks. I mean, it's like unbelievable. Um, it's not something I ever anticipated uh, when I started the wine business, but you could see it. You could watch it grow. Um, this, this, the Paris tasting was part of that. It gave California wines cred that they probably didn't have before. Everybody used to say French wines are better. Did I, did I mention that most of what my parents drank was French or European? Um, and that began to change. And, um, and more and more small wineries. It was really the, the kind of the small boutique winery revolution that pushed it up. And a lot of those people who had been in, you know, the Berkeley Wine and Food Society and other wine societies were also the better healed people in society. They were doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs. And they began investing in wineries. So like you had... You know, in our valley, you had, of course, Hansel, and Heights was the inheritor of Hansel. Heights was also the inheritor of a lot of investment from people, you know, from the Berkeley area. But they were investing in other things too, like Stag's Leap and uh, Montalena. And yeah, uh, I mean, Kenwood had their Yalupa Vineyard, and it was owned by an inv a group of investors that were all doctors mm -hmm. that that those guys had put together. And and I think there were a number of groups that owned vineyards like that at yep. the time, right? Yeah, there there were these were and these were people who loved European wines. 
So they brought the European ethic. I mean, you know, it's interesting to note that uh, Hansel was the first place uh, to use French oak, was the first place to use, uh, uh, and I jacketed stainless steel. They use cold water, not, you know, not uh, glycol like yeah. we do now. Um, and, um, and they approached winemaking in a different area. You know, malolactic fermentation, for instance. Brad Webb was honestly a genius. He was like the, the foundational uh, pillar for, for, I think, uh, what we can think cons- consider the modern wine business. But he doesn't really get the credit he deserves. Joe Heitz took the, uh, uh, those early Hansel wines, the 62s, um, uh, and put them in bottle under his own label and sort of took credit for them. He elevated them, shall we say, but he bought <laughs> them from, uh, he bought them from Hansel and those wow. put, those put heights on the market. His, uh, his, uh, Chardonnay from that era was considered to be one of the, one of the great Chardonnays. But was that a time. Sonoma County Appalachian wine or was it mm-hmm. just, it was, it was a Sonoma County Appalachian wine. It yeah. was like, you know, it was, uh, the Pinot Noir came from, um, Hansel, you know, right, yeah. right up, right up the street from us, right yeah. across the valley. Uh, you can almost uh, see it from here, probably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah kind of I just, like, I, kind of like know. Russia. It's like yeah, visible exactly. at all times. Right. Yeah. <laughs> We're in Sarah Palin's backyard here. <laughs> well, we are up on a nice mountain at Bart Hansen's ranch today. We yeah. have this beautiful you know, place. A good view across the valley from here, for sure. Absolutely yeah, stunning. Look, yeah. Looking right at your the old Ravenswood Winery, actually, yeah. you can see it down there. Um, so, Joel, maybe this is a good time to talk about these two uh, wines, of course. The Bedrock Vineyard is near and dear to your heart, obviously. And um, the Old Hill Ranch is, I would have to say, for me, when I was learning about wine, the wine that I fell in love with first was Zinfandel. And um, going to the Sonoma County Harvest Fair and going around and tasting just Zinfandels, um, the wine that stuck out to me the most in you know at that time was the Ravenswood Old Hill Zin, and then the Los Chamazal Rocky Terrace. Yep. Um, and and at the time, um, you know Kenwood, we got the Barisha. Uh, Zin, which I think then I think maybe they shared it with Ravenswood, or maybe Ravenswood started getting it after. But that's always been a favorite of mine, also. So yeah. anyway, Ra- Ravenswood I'll- got Barisha after uh, Kenwood got Barisha. In fact, it went through an iteration with Gunlock Bunchu for a while before okay. Ravenswood picked it up. Um, yeah, these two vineyards are really special vineyards. Um, I um, I started working with um, Bedrock when it was um, called Madrone Vineyard. And it was um, being used exclusively by Sebastiani. Right. Uh, they did vineyard designate some of the Merlot, and they did occasionally vineyard designated Zinfandel, but it didn't happen very often. It like just generally got put into their whatever their common wine was. Um, and at one point, they didn't need as much Zinfandel as I had, so they made the mistake of letting me into the vineyard. Um, and so. <laughs> I, uh, and he has, and he never left. Well, and I never left. Exactly. <laughs> I was, a, I became a squatter, uh, and I got to know the Domenici family. Uh, and uh, at Did one, you say Medici or Domenici? Yeah. I know. Uh, and and at at one point, I was standing in the vineyard with the Domenici daughter, and I and they were talking about pulling up this old Zinfandel, which was planted in 1888 by George Hurst, who was William Randolph's father. Um, wow. It was a vineyard that was originally planted by um, General Joseph Hooker um, in 1853. It went through um, a time with a guy named Shepard, who was the ambassador to the Far East. You know, he went through the, the time of Phylloxera. He hated it. I don't know that Morgan said this, but the, Morgan found his diary in, uh, at 
Bancroft, and uh, the, the last entry in the diary was, Hallelujah, I've sold the vineyard to Mr. Hurst, buying my wife the diamond ring she deserves, moving east, getting out of town, basically. <laughs> I've had it with this place. Uh, and uh, so Hurst took it over, and he, was, he provided the rootstock that went into it. But in any case, I, I talked to them, uh, one of the scions of Domenici, and I said, you know, like, pulling out, that's criminal. I mean, pulling out some is criminal, you know, like, and I went on. I got, I got a little heated, I have to say. And uh, she said, you sound just like my grandfather. You know, I said, well, he was right. And um, so um, a week later, I get a call from the, uh, the patriarch of the family saying, well, if you like this vineyard so much, maybe you'd like to buy it. <laughs> so after some ado, we ended up doing that. You know, so I now own that vineyard, and the Zinfandel is not Cabernet. It's still, and we're redoing the vineyard, and Morgan is a, a treasure when it comes to vineyard management and organic farming, and he's got a whole system, and we're working on revitalizing this vineyard. Which leads me to Old Hill, because Old Hill, when I first saw Old Hill, I saw it with Joe Swan in 1975, and there was a hippie commune living on it. Um, <clears throat> was, it vines, was it owned by the Buckland family then? It was not owned by the Buckland okay. family. It was owned by Carol, I can't remember her name, but she was a real estate agent, and she bought it because she wanted to subdivide it and turn it into houses, and the <laughs> county wouldn't let her do it. So she basically let things go. The vineyard, when I first saw it, was kind of being used by the commune to make wine. Um, Mike Tobolus was getting a little bit of it, you know, but it was mostly buried under poison oak and buckbrush and like, you know, small trees and things like that. So um, it turned out it went on, on up for sale and Otto Teller bought it, the Buckland family. And Otto... Joel, that's a postcard that I have a little oh, collection of postcards, this. and I it, look at both sides because one's looking down at I think the ranch, and that orchard has to be somewhere in that area when you look up on the hillside. You're looking up towards Secret Pasture, there. Yeah. yeah. So th I mean, this isn't great um, podcasting right. material, but let's look at a yeah, no, let's look at a postcard on well, an we, audio. Maybe, maybe we can talk format. about it later. It's, it's, it's fabulous. Well, it turns <laughs> out it turns out that this now this, for the mime section. Sorry. It turns it turned out this vineyard was originally planted by William McPherson Hill, and he was family, and those were orchard trees that you saw on that postcard. It turned out he was famous for his fruit. He sold probably what was the most expensive peach ever sold in California. Uh, in the 1870s, he sold peaches for like $60 a peach. Uh, so that was like, that was a what? pretty serious, like, you know, in today's dollars. But, you know, okay. but having said that, uh, that's, a, that's a pretty expensive peach. So he was famous for his fruit, and he planted this vineyard, and he planted it originally in 1861. Uh, it was, a, as all vineyards were back, and then it was a mixed black vineyard, if they weren't white. Uh, and it has 20 different grape varieties in it. It's really remarkable. It's 20 identified grape varieties. There are still some out there that are unidentified, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's something I call the uh, the Black Panther grape. It's a black grape. It's vinifera. It's got a very lacy leaf, and it's got black spots. I mean, so it's like, a, it's like a crazy grape. You know, I have no idea. I want to plant some. And nobody has been able to DNA identify that for you? We have DNA. We have put DNA on it, uh, and uh, we've sent it out for DNA analysis, and it comes back no match. It turns out oh, that really? to, to analyze with DNA, you have to have a control sample. Uh, and there are only about 4,000 control samples of, you know, so you have to have a known, you know, a, a plant that's of known variety, and you know it's DNA, so you can compare the DNA, whatever you're looking at, to that DNA of the known variety. It turns out there are, you know, 
considerably more vinifera varieties than 4,000. Uh, so amazing. You've been doing some DNA work with Zinfandel in Croatia, right? I have actually. You know, it was, I was uh, lucky enough to go to a big conference in Croatia about a year and a half ago. Uh, called I Am Tributrog, and it was really to look at the origins of Zinfandel, but it was also to look at the um, the business of this grape um, overall. And so we had people from Apulia, we had people from California, and of course we had the Croatians there. And it was really about the search for the origins of this grape. For a long time, Zinfandel was the mystery grape. Nobody really knew where it came from. Uh, People thought it was Primitivo. Well, it's genetically identical to Primitivo, but it's quite a different clone from Primitivo. Uh, and it's pretty clear that Italy is not the source of Zinfandel. There's no really background history associated with it. Uh, but if you go across the Adriatic, there's a grape that looks very much like Zinfandel, that people thought might be Zinfandel, called Plavats Mali, uh, or Mali Plavats. And... Um, and when they ran the DNA on that um, and a bunch of different samples, they found that it was not Zinfandel, but it was very closely related to Zinfandel, probably one of the sons of Zinfandel. This is, turns out that this is a very promiscuous grape because as they began running DNA on grapes in Croatia that looked like Zinfandel, they found about 20 different varieties that were related to Zinfandel. So that means that maybe long ago Zinfandel was planted there. At one point, they finally found three vines in a vineyard of a grape called Zerlinac Castellansky, is the black grape of Castel. It was planted along the Dalmatian coast in the castle lands. Um, but they figured this was a local name. They had to look farther, so they kept looking. They went through many, many iterations of this. Uh, and they finally found six more vines. Uh, and an old woman that went with these vines, she said, oh, yeah, this grape used to be planted everywhere when I was a girl. Uh, she said, but you know, when flocks were hit, we had to replant. This grape's very susceptible to mildew, uh, so we planted with Plavats because it was kind of the same. Seems like the same, but you know, it was just more resistant to mildew. Uh, and she called it privy drug. It turned out that in the historical references, there was no privy drug, but there was a tr something called tribi drug, one letter difference, and. They ultimately found an amphloography of a, of a horticulturist who was collecting grape leaves all over the Dalmatian coast in 1929. Don't, don't quote me on that. It's like around that time. It was a long time ago. Uh, and they went through this, and they found a grape called Tribidrog. And, in fact, there was a pressed leaf there. And, gosh, it looked a lot like Zinfandel. So they did DNA on the leaf, and it turned out, to be Zinfandel. Now, Tribidrog, it turns out, has a huge historical reference. Like, it's been planted, it was planted in the Dalmatian coast by Venetian nobility. Venice owned that part of Croatia from 1200 to 1600. And so if you went to a mask ball in Venice in 1300 and, uh, and you drank red wine, there was a good chance you were drinking Zinfandel. Um, and then all of a sudden there was these all these sons of Zinfandel everybody and no one <laughs> knew where they came from. <laughs> exactly. And... Um, and so Zinfandel um, was planted everywhere. Tribidrog, it uh, turns out the oldest reference to Tribidrog in the literature is a barrel of wine that was sold by the Croatians to the Apulians in 1488. That was before Columbus arrived in the New World. Wow. You know, so it's a really ancient grape. Uh, it also awesome. turns out there's a guy named Jose Velamos uh, who uh, worked with Jancis Robinson on her amphilography, and he's a grape geneticist out of Switzerland. And he's gone through and he's a analyzed every grape in Europe. And he's decided that all grapes in Europe are related to what he calls 13 founder grapes. 
And these grapes are the source of everything else. And around the Adriatic, the founder grape is Zinfandel. Wow. There are at least 23 different varieties that are related to Zinfandel. So it's been out there getting crossed with everything. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm speechless. Yeah, well, honestly, I mean, the Peter and, and, you know, people it's say the, wine. It's well, the, and people say it's not a noble grape. I mean, come on. <laughs> right. And it's, and and it's it is it is one history. of the most noble, noble of grapes. grapes. It's yeah. one of the oldest grapes we work with. I mean, Cabernet Sauvignon is only a couple hundred years old. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a hybrid cross between Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet Franc. I mean, yeah. like really. Mm. I mean, yeah, it makes nice wine, but yeah, really. I mean, we're talking noble. <laughs> That's perfect. What a story, <laughs> Joel. What's your favorite wine? Oh, if you had to man. have one glass forever, what would it be? Oh, I, I would, I would die if that had to be my fate. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, what's, 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 like what that, I love know? about wine is that it's diverse, and I can go anywhere and taste all sorts of things, and I can travel the world, and everybody has their own vision of what it is. Uh, you know, my father put down 47 Cheval Blanc for my birth year, uh, and um, and we drank that wine until I was um, what 30. My mother cooked my 30th birthday and she pulled out the last bottle we had and I'd seen it sell for auction that's like $5,000 it would sell for more than that now and um, and I said mom we can't drink this wine I said we've had at least 20 times before I said you know just sell it and do something nice for yourself she said no no your father collected it for you you know besides that you got to remember what we paid for it I said what'd you pay for it she said well, ordinarily I couldn't tell you she said but this one has a price tag on it your father bought it as a single at Joseph's Liquor in on Solano Avenue <laughs> uh in Albany and uh I I went to the kitchen and I looked at the bottle and it was twelve dollars and fifty cents Blasphemous. And I came back to my mother and I said, Mom, we can't drink this bottle of wine. I don't cheap, drink cheap wine on my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we drank that bottle of wine. But um, it was, um, but th that for me was kind of one of those very memorable wines. And I've had some very memorable wines in my life. But it was a, it was a very ripe Bordeaux year. And so it had the kind of the best of you know Bordeaux on on that bank of Bordeaux. The wines in '47 on uh, on the other side of the Gironde were um, a bit more acidic, but in Pomerol and Saint-Mignon, it was like quite amazing. So the Cheval Blanc from that year, you know, was like one of those wines that sort of sat in my brain forever and. Uh, I would be delighted to drink it any time. Do you get back to uh, the Gironde River in that area? I do. Ever? Yeah, I get back now and again. You know, I try to get to Europe, you know. It's a beautiful spot. Isn't every, it? every um, you know, two or three years. And, you know, I hit different parts of Europe. In fact, uh, one of the points of selling uh, Once in Future, I have a couple of European distributors. I've got one in the UK and I've got a, you know, a really you know, good one in Switzerland. So it allows me to hit to the heart of Europe, do some work Excellent. and uh, then go to some place that I love to be. Next time I'm in London, I'll look for it. Yeah. Okay. I remember the last time I found a Han. Yep. And yep. here it's all of what? Eight bucks, something like that. It was yeah. on sale for like thirty pounds. So it's, it's yeah, ridiculous. No, it's, over it's, there. It's, it's very interesting to see how um, how how um, wine pricing is there. But you know, um, Harrods carried my old hill for years, and Harrods now carries. Oh, really? Yeah, Harrods now carries Once in Future. Yeah, which Fantastic, is, which is Joel. What do you think of this old hill? Um, mm. How's how's it tasting? Uh, ninety four is a great year. Yeah, yeah. ninety four was a lovely year. Actually, I'm actually liking the ninety threes a little more than the ninety fours at this particular juncture. Okay, uh, but I think the 
90s decade was a great decade for Zinfandel in particular. It was a great decade for wine, but it was right. a great decade for Zinfandel in particular. And that early 90s decade, 91, 92, 93, 94, and 95, were amazing years. It was like, you know, often get a string of good vintages like that. Right. The 94 was like a, a moderately ripe year and had uh, you know, lots of really pretty character to it. Uh, it was it tended to be a little softer, as you know. Old Hill, you know, in those years had serious structure. It was like, you know, we were getting less than a ton an acre from this particular vineyard. So, and you had all these other grape varieties like Grenache. Uh, it's got a significant amount of Grenache in the vineyard. So, it like it, uh, it's set up more like a Rhone wine, and it smells a little mm-hmm. like a Rhone wine mm-hmm. now. There's a camphory quality to it. Yeah. There's a perfumey quality to it. The um, on the palate, it's still quite fresh. Yeah, you know, really the acid is. and the brightness and the structure are all there, but it's got a kind of a long, kind of evolved, kind of herbal finish. And I don't mean that in the green herbal sense, but in the sense of like, um, you know, like mixed herbs of Provence. Yeah, like, like yeah, mixed herbs from yeah. Provence, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it's got a really nice character. Yeah, it's you know, really, really tasting beautiful. Yeah. So I have more of a style question here, and it's about these two labels, because I'm looking at the 94 Old Hill back label, and back label is a place where we have a fair amount of leeway as far as what we put on there. There's some things that have to be on there, alcohol and sulfites if it has it, and, and the government warning, things like that. Uh, it's you. Uh, so this is the 94. It has um, the vineyard, obviously, the variety, the appellation, the year. It has the picking date, October 7th, 1994. The bottling date, May 6th, 1996. The vine age, 110 years. Case production, total acidity, 6, uh, 0.69 grams per 100 milliliters. And then made and bottled by. And then I'm looking at the once in future, and you found more information that you wanted to put on the back label for the <laughs> once in future. And I, I mean, I... I as you know, obviously, and most of our audience is a wine nerdy kind of audience, and in, in its you know our own ways, um, and talk about just sort of like putting all of that out there a little bit um, in a well, way that you know, it, not not many wineries, not many winemakers are sort of you know open. Yeah, there's like there's that. no um, there's no question that um, we have gotten a little bit. Too much on back labels into the romance of you know, of, of the wine beauty business. copy they call it right yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and you know that's because marketers are involved in it and they're not marketers are not always wine drinkers in fact I'd say generally they're not wine drinkers um, and so what they are trying to do is they're trying to hit the highest common average denominator so how many people can we suck into this and by the way they believe that nobody knows anything about wine. So if I'm making a bottle of wine like Old Hill Ranch or like you know, Bedrock, um, I'm not making that for the person who's buying a $10 bottle of wine. You know, I'm making that for people who uh, are putting wine down, who love wine, who like the flavors of place, who really think about that as part of the way they consume wines. And that also defines me. And so I say, what do I want to know about a wine when I'm drinking it? You know, and so that back label is really a winemaker's back label. So I put on the things that I think are critical to understanding more about the character of the wine that I hope will give the wine 
drinker um, more pleasure and more understanding because you know wine drinking at this level anyway is an intellectual exercise uh, it's uh, and that's part of the joy not only does it tickle your palate and you know, and, and maybe make you a little tipsy but it also tickles your brain. I mean, it really gives you a way of looking at the world differently, of comparing one wine to another wine, of understanding difference, uh, and also understanding commonality. So like on the back of the Once and Future yeah, label. Yeah, I almost want to just read that. I think you should just read. On the back of the yeah. Once and Future label, this is Bedrock Vineyard Zinfandel. Sonoma Valley, Sonoma County, Tuscan Red Hill Series soils, 128-year-old vines, 8 by 8 head pruned, picked, on 9-5-2016, it's indigenous really? yeast, small open-top redwood fermenters, 100% French oak, 30% new French oak barrels. 250 cases were made. Uh, pH is 3.74, and the TA is 6.1 grams per liter. We bottled it on November the 7th, uh, 2017. Uh, I actually, in my um, my Hat tilt to uh, marketers, I put on a tiny, tiny description. Spicy, perfumed, red fruit, flavor, harmonious, and age-worthy. Winemaker was Joel Peterson. The grower was Morgan Twain Peterson. And it's Once in Future Wine. www.onceinfuture.com. <laughs> Stunning. That's, that's beautiful. It I really mean, it, that, it, it really does. It gives just the right information. Yeah. It doesn't have any fluff. I, I have this argument with my wife every time we do a bottling about you know what's going on in the back label she wants me to do descriptors i hate doing descriptors i keep it to the minimal try to you know i've tried to do that just lining yeah. it out and um but she's a salesperson so she's a marketer yeah. not a mm-hmm. and you know yeah. the thing that defines so i love it joel m- making wine or sort of the challenge of making wine is one of the hardest things to do is to do nothing right or to right. like to pull back what you think is sort of the human ego piece of it and i mean even your descriptor section on here is just words it's not even a complete sentence right i mean it's almost like you're you took here marketers fuck you here's my here's my descript- <laughs> here's my marketing right. um yeah you know, I, I just i mean you know you know i've had the um I guess you'd call it a pleasure. In fact, it has been a pleasure. I've been in the wine business for a long time, and I built Ravenswood into a substantial winery. Uh, and I made wines at a number of different levels. Obviously, Ravenswood still does uh, single vineyard designated wines. We still do Old Hill and some other things there, um, which are you know really in the category we're drinking today. But I also made County Series wines, which were still darn good from old vines. Uh, and then I made Vintner's Blend. So there are different levels of winemaking and different levels of approach. So things like uh, these wines, because they come from such unique vineyards, you essentially can keep your winemaking as simple as possible. I mean, and these wines don't get anything done to them, really. I mean, you know, I, I crush them. I, I hesitate to say they make themselves. They don't. But I pick the grapes when they're supposed to be picked. You know, they're all indigenous yeast. You know, there's there's really no fault at all here. You know, French oak is as, dre- as dressed up as they get. Uh, and then they get bottled without any other applications to them. Um, but when you make something like Vintner's Blend, you're working with, you know, grapes from Lodi and your gra- grapes from Sonoma and grapes from everywhere in the world um, of California. Uh, and... It's about blending. It's about putting together things that uh, work together. You know, so Amador well, and, 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 and you know, and the consumer is different. Uh, you know, on that consumer, those people they want to know the 
vintners um, blend. They want to know that it's consistent. They want to come back to it year and after year in and year out. Where these wines, you can tell the story of the vintage changing every year, and people want that. Absolutely. And people at the level at the other level, they don't want that. They just want it to taste the same. Inter- interesting though, though I've I've had a lot of people who actually drink wines at this level come over and tell me how much they enjoy the vintners blend, which is hilarious. You know, one of the um, one of the measures the marketers use for a success of a wine is they have a question on their questionnaire. Would you take this wine to a party with friends? <laughs> and if and if if sixty five percent of the people say they would take this wine to a party with friends, you've got a winner. <laughs> <laughs> I have I want I have another sort of wonkish question here. So I want to get back to these two wines a little bit, um, and with a little preface because this is we. Um, have a little Zinfandel vineyard that we're farming um, at the, the west end of, of Madrone Road. New planting, but we planted it with mostly bedrock selections for, mm-hmm. the, for the budwood. And uh, one of the things that, you know, we're, it's a young vineyard, so you know, hard to draw a lot of conclusions, but um, it is more of a, one of the most elegant versions of, of Zinfandel that I've that I'd ever tasted, you know, from in the vineyard and, and now that it's, you know, drying in barrel um, and tasting these two wines next to each other, um, the, what is this, a 20, the 2016 Bedrock Once in Future is a much more elegant wine than the, the Ravenswood. And, you know, obviously the same winemaking, and I, I love the Ravenswood. It's, it's big and bold um, and tastes a lot more like the things that we've made from Old Hill selections of, of Budwood. And we're talking about two vineyards that are relatively similar in age. They're not very far from each other. But in your having worked with these two clones and these two Zinfandels for as, as much as you have, are, am, I, am I crazy in that assessment that I'm picking up here? Or is, I mean, are they really, can they really be that two so different clones or is there something going else going on there that I'm uh, it's trying to it's pick a up? very complex um, matrix shall we say um, the uh, agua caliente bench which is where your young vineyard is planted and where uh, bedrock is planted is actually slightly different in climatic conditions than just like was it four miles up the road? It may not even be that yeah. much, you know. So you begin getting more of the um, the central, the center of the valley, and perhaps there is a bit more warmth in that area. I used to call Old Hill the Banana Belt of Sonoma Valley, right. um, and so the character of uh, our part of the valley on the Alcaliente Bench is wines that tend to have more high tone red fruit. It's actually uh, cooler and more more tannin and more acid. If you look at the heat summation in that particular area, the heat summation is uh, the same as Forestville. Hmm. Um, wow. yeah, so it's quite cool, you know, yeah. surprisingly. Um, we do have some pretty hot days now and again, but it, uh, overall it's, fairly, it's a fairly cool site. You're speaking um, of bedrock. I'm speaking of bedrock. I'm also speaking of uh, the, the, the vineyard that... Uh, uh, that Phil planted, uh, really, across, it's very close. It's right yeah. at the end of Madrone Road. Uh, it's part of the Hamilton. I think it's Hamilton, isn't it? Uh, this is actually uh, owned by somebody else. It's up more, uh, the yeah. the first property on Morningside Drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Um, 
So, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a place, you know, somebody once asked um, Eugene Hilgard, who was considered to be the dean of horticulture at UC in the 1880s, whether, whether there would ever be any place in uh, California that could grow grapes that were the equivalent of the great uh, grapes of, uh, of the great claret grapes of Europe. And he said, "Well, yes, of course, the Aguacaliente Bench in Sonoma Valley, hmm. uh, and it's it's you know it's an alluvial fan, and it's uh, it's got um, it's got a, a cooler climate, and yeah, so yeah. yes, yeah. so there it turns out that um, the clonal issue with Zinfandel is an interesting one because uh, I've been part of a big study that UC did, that, you know, it's called the Zap Heritage uh, Clone Study." Uh, where they went out and collected 95 selections of old vines Zinfandel that looked different. They brought them all back. We selected some that didn't have viruses, which were 20 of them. Um, and, um, and we actually tested all these, and we looked at their uh, cluster sizes and their berry sizes and their growth and you know, made wine out of them. Um, it turns out that there's very little difference uh, in Zinfandel in California. There may be two clonal variations within... California. One, uh, like the Lytton Springs clone, tends to shatter a little bit more. Uh, it tends to have looser clusters. It's not quite as vigorous. Uh, and it ripens a bit earlier. The other is a more full cluster. The, the Lytton Springs clone gives wines that have tends to have more structure. Uh, the, other, the, uh, the other clonal variation tends to be wines that are a little bit fruitier and softer. But you know, the difference is really small. The only, the only really different Zinfandel tributrog slash Primitivo clone that we have is Primitivo. Uh, so Lytton Springs sits a little bit to uh, the Primitivo side of the ledger, but it doesn't get anywhere close to Primitivo. Primitivo mm -hmm. is, shatters a lot. The clusters are really loose. The crop levels are lower. It ripens at least a week and a half or two weeks earlier than uh, traditional Zinfandel does. Um, and the vines are a little more diminutive. The only Primitivo I've seen in town is by imagery. So Joey Benziger was making it. But I haven't seen any. Well, no, the, else. The, the imagery makes a wine that they call Primitivo. Is that it? Um, it was, um, it, it was uh, Vance Sharp's Vineyard and the Bruchera Vineyard yeah. that they called it um, Primitivo. And, okay. And that's so really, they just I mean, use the name. Yeah, that's okay. because of the challenge that Zinfandel has. In the in the consumer marketplace, uh, so people come up with other things to call it off. Rena well, the marketing you know, people. Yeah. Well, no, no, no this is marketing. It's people. actually more complex than that. It turns out that while we know genetically that Primitivo and Zimpdel are genetically identical but very different clones from one another. Uh, and that in Europe, you can call Primitivo Zinfandel, and you see Zinfandels being sold in uh, Sweden, for instance, that are from Italy, uh, that are Primitivo. Um, but it turns out that the BATF has not recognized um, Zinfandel and Primitivo as being the same. And so if you grow Primitivo, you can't label it Zinfandel. Right. Uh, now, which is why there is now in the Central Valley... Uh, a Zinfandel clone P because you know <laughs> people just like the because they can't sell Primitivo for the most part if, if people are labeling it as Zinfandel right. so they so there's a there's a bit of fudging going on um, but um, but you know so if if they're calling the Benziger calling this Primitivo it probably is the Primitivo clone we have Primitivo yeah. clone here you know Davis Davis has it in the FPS uh, selection uh, so. I think 
Go ahead. Yeah, no, I think uh, Henry Belmonte, I think they do a, a Primitivo at uh, VJB. Yeah. And I don't know where they're sourcing that from, but yeah, they definitely... There, there, there is Primitivo planted. Um, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's, you know, if you've ever been to Apulia, it's like a really hot, dry place, very sandy. Um, and you make sense that they would have selected a, a selection like the one Primitivo is in that particular area. It's, it's been, you know, in, um, in Italy since the 1700s. You know. And by the way, Primitivo means early ripening, uh, one of the first picked. Excellent. And it turns out, interestingly enough, that Tribidrog is from Greek derivatives that also mean early ripening. Yeah. Well, Joel, you have been such a fascinating guest. We're sort yeah. of approaching the end of the podcast, but uh, so much information stored in your brain, and, and the stories are just phenomenal. I loved it. So, so Joel, re- real quick, um, on as far as this year's vintage, are you? did you make any new wines this year? I think I might have seen... Um, a couple new wines for Once in Future this year. Is that yeah, correct? I'm working. Uh, I'm actually getting to work with Old Hill again. Wow, that's so. Exciting. Is that what that yeah. great picture that was yeah. you on like in on the tractor on the with tractor Will with Will and, and, yeah, Morgan, Morgan, and Morgan and, and, and yeah, yeah, exactly. That so what they, they Morgan let you have some of the grapes or <laughs> Will <laughs> let you have some or of Will the did. Yeah, well, <laughs> let's just say I hooked Morgan up and then <laughs> <laughs> it all worked out. Uh, and uh, I also am making some interesting. Uh, Zinfandel from out in Oakley. I, so right. I found a vineyard out there called Oakley Road, and I make a Mataro and a Zinfandel from the same vineyard, and it's own rooted vines planted in the late 1800s. Wow. And it is pretty amazing stuff. The textural characteristics of the tannin and the fruit characters, fascinating. Yeah, really interesting. So I have one more question along that is, so when we had Morgan and Chris on, of course, Morgan refers to as to Mataro. Um, Tegan uh, refers to Mataro. You do. Um, but then there's other people. I think the Katuri still mention it as being Muvedra. Um, can you talk anything to that? Yeah, do you have, yeah. I mean, is it just so, what, what you guys believe? It is a historical thing? Is it? It's a historical thing. Uh, it turns out that, you know, Morvedra, Monastrel, and Mataro are all the same grape. Great. Uh, grape is probably of Spanish origins. It moved to France. It's grown in Bandol as Morvedra, and you see it in southern France as Morvedra. That's the French name for the grape. Uh, when the grape arrived here in California, it wasn't called Morvedra. It was called Mataro, it. probably because it left the Spanish port of Mataro. It was probably Monastrel. Um, and, and so... Historically, in California, it's been called Mataro. Ridge called it Mataro, for instance, right. when they did it years ago. Um, so we just carry on with the historic tradition. It probably would be less confusing if we called it Morved, because everybody knows about Morvedra in France. And so they say, Mataro, what is it? I say Morvedra, and everybody goes, oh, yeah. So from the marketing standpoint, it would probably be easier to market Morved. On the other hand, what am I making? I'm making 300 cases of this. Right. Uh, I can fight the fight. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Joel, how do our listeners get in touch with you? Uh, well, they can, t- they can get in touch with me by going to my website, uh, which is onceinfuturewine.com. Or if they want to talk to me via email, they can, cl- they can email me at joel at onceinfuturewine.com. Um, so I'm, 
I'm easy to get a hold of, and if they want to sign up for my, uh, you know, my wines, I do one release a year. I open my release for two weeks, and with any luck, most of the wines are gone within that period of time. So, and that generally happens um, around March. Yeah. Brian, any last words, buddy? No, sir. I'm just still um, thinking that Robert Kamen, when he hears this show, is going to think about building a time machine to go back in time to get one of those peaches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he should. And if, pay, if he and does, I want one. And he'll pay 120 bucks just to, <laughs> there to make sure he gets it. And Sam, you've got uh, the last Vinyl Sunday of I, I the year. I think this will air up, after right? the last oh, Vinyl really? Sunday, though. This coming it's Sunday? It's this then? the 21st. Ah, so. damn. Yeah, we'll, Sorry. we'll be out five days later. But. Sorry, podcast world. That's it okay. would have been a great party for you to be at, but you missed it. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Bart? Um, Joel, you know, we, uh, uh, with any luck, we will get in our last of our grapes this week, it sounds like. Um, I think we push it till next week. Really? Yeah. Well, yeah. I think we'll talk about it. Yeah. No, <laughs> there, it's, it, it's, I know. Nothing's, there's no reason. I'm, I'm good. Right. I'm good. Let I just don't want to be the last man. Hang. I don't want to be the last man standing. Well, you know. <laughs> or you know what? Or maybe so. I'll, I'll um, be out there after you, Bart. Okay. okay. There you go. Well, hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. We are the Winemakers with Sam Katuri, Joel Peterson today, Kyle Reynolds, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey. I'm John Myers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks. Thanks.